Hey everyone, welcome to Pieces of You, a show about life through the lens of four fierce and resilient women who lost their moms too damn soon. Each episode will feature stories to inspire hope, healing, and connection. Because if we work together, we can make the broken better. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the podcast episode today. I am Erin, and I'll be hosting this one. Today, we're covering the topic of mothering without a mother. This episode contains a content warning related to the topic of mother loss. Please check the show notes for a more detailed description. All right. So today's topic is very close to my heart and giving me plenty of anxiety as well. As our listeners most likely know by now, my partner and I are expecting our first child. At the time of recording this, I am 36 weeks pregnant. And by the time you all hear this episode, I will be a few weeks postpartum as we're recording ahead of time to allow for my maternity leave. When discussing this episode structure, we thought it would be kind of appropriate that I would host, considering that I'm newly coming into this stage of life. So just a little bit about what this looks like for me. The choice to be a mother is a very intentional one for me and one that I don't take lightly. I spent years being indifferent to parenthood and the potential of starting my own family. And now at this stage of my life, I recognize this feeling happening due to a couple of reasons. So my family structure growing up was simply me and my single mother. She did not have a good relationship with my dad and to my knowledge, never dated anyone while I was growing up. I did not have a direct example of a traditional family structure or of a loving and supportive romantic partnership. Additionally, going through the trauma of losing my mother and primary parent so suddenly as a teenager severed my connection to safety, trust in myself, and a generational maternal connection. The mother path is one that I've now chosen for myself due to a couple different factors. The last couple of years of therapy that I have really intentionally sought out and engaged with has explored themes of trauma, trust, communication, and connection. And also because of the relationship that I have with my partner, who I've been with for several years. It's made me realize that discovering and cultivating a loving, supportive, and trusting relationship was a factor in my ambivalence to having children. Having someone that you trust inherently and are honest with constantly to engage with in the parenting journey is important. And I didn't realize how much I was lacking that. So only after having worked through my healing process to this point and being flexible with the grief that shows up, am I actually able to engage in this process and go through this big transition into a new stage in my life? So that's just a little bit of kind of where I'm at and the lens that I'm going into this with. Yeah. So I have some questions and prompts that we're just going to be talking about today. All four of us are at different stages in our lives and our motherhood journeys. So I think it will be very interesting conversations happening with all of us coming through different lenses and different points of wisdom in our lives. And yeah, I'm really excited for this conversation today, everybody. I am as well. I don't even know what all of things that will come up, but I just, as you're talking through this, I brought myself back to 
even the thought of do I want kids, which I always knew I wanted kids as well. And the process that it's even taken to have kids. And now that I have kids, all the things that are coming up. So I think it'll be really interesting to reflect on where each of us are at. That's actually one of the first questions that I have that I want us to kind of talk about is that starting point of what did it take to get you to the point of choosing motherhood? Or I feel like a lot of us, especially female identifying, just feel like it's inevitable which I think is this added layer when you are a motherless daughter and then you feel this pressure as well. So what did it take to get you to the point of choosing motherhood? Or did you feel that it it wasn't a choice? It was just expected? Or, you know, Sarah, who does not have kids, are you still grappling with that choice? Are you still either on the fence or showing ambivalence sometimes? Kind of what did it take to get you to that point of choosing it for yourself? I just kept thinking when you were saying that, Aaron, did you choose motherhood or did motherhood choose you? Is how it feels as a woman. Like you're saying, I, it doesn't feel like it's been a choice. It's just something that's been expected. And thankfully, that's something I've talked about and processed. And I know it's not, I now know after really challenging that narrative that it's expected of me that I don't have to, but I really do want to. And so I'm so excited to have this conversation and hear from the two moms with children out of the womb. And then also (laughs) you, Erin, having a child in your womb, just what, what to, I mean, I know your, my experience, all of our experiences are going to be a little bit different, which is cool, but it's helpful to hear. What got you to the point, Sarah, of like, yeah, I think I do want to be a mother especially as a motherless daughter. So knowing that that trauma and that loss is there. It's a really, really good question because I keep going back to what you had said about feeling, I don't know if you said it this exact way, but feeling you have a partner you can depend on or trust the importance of that. And that's what's gotten me to the point where as I think of myself as a child and an adult in a lot of ways. And I know I'm more complex than even that, but it helps me kind of frame like there's like this adult side of me that, you know, thinks about responsibility and what the right thing to do is, which again, there's no necessary, it's not that simple, but that part of me feels safe and comfortable making the choice to be a mom now, because I feel like I have an environment that is safe to bring a child into. Whereas in the past, when maybe I was operating more from my younger self, like my less developed self, I was kind of chasing just that feeling of safety with a conscious awareness. It wasn't, it wasn't a reality. And so the idea of bringing a child into that felt really scary, but I, I wanted it so badly. So it was this, it's just like such a contradiction, this inner, I think they call it dissonance maybe cognitive dissonance is the word where it's like you cognitively, you know, consciously want something, but you just have this kind of gut feeling it's not right or it's not happening in the way that it that could be or that you really deeply want it to be. Yeah, that that's been my process. But I don't know when I made the choice. Like again, I I was told that my mom loved kids, that she wanted to be a mom. And so being fed that narrative, I've 
I haven't actually had a lot of time to really reflect on this, Erin. So I'm going to think a little more. (laughs) This is a good question. I want to share that I feel like I knew I wanted to be a mom when, when I came out of the womb. I was always just so drawn to babies. Obviously, I don't know when I was a baby, but I was very young when I knew that I, I wanted to be a mom. So after my mom died, it, it never was a thought to me that I wouldn't be a mom ever. I just, I was meant to be a mom. I felt that. And um, I always deeply desired it. I will say after my mom died, I struggled to find connection sometimes with her. And so I really envisioned when I became a mom that there would be a next level of connection with her because she was my mom, right? So we would have that shared experience of being mothers. And I will tell you, it didn't strike me that way once I became a mom. I still really felt like I was grasping for connection with her. And it it didn't come naturally through being a mom. And some of it was, you know, I I thought my oldest was going to be a boy. And just like my mom had a boy for her oldest. So there were these like very specific things that I was looking for that weren't connecting us. But then just generally, (laughs) I don't know how I could cultivate that. And I think one of the biggest things that came to me as I journeyed as a mother was that I was mothering without a mother and she mothered with a mother. (laughs) There's just this like huge disconnect because of that. And that, I mean, I, I grieved that. I grieved that deeply. Yeah. I just dove right in. (laughs) (laughs) We could get real specific on all those things, right? I relate to a lot of things you said, Christine, like wanting to have a boy for my first because there was a my brother was the firstborn in our family as well. And I remember when we opened up the card for the gender, I was a little disappointed. Plus all my friends had boys, I think. So I just wanted to be in the same realm that they were in. So I relate to that as well. But then having two, so I have a, a seven and a nine-year-old and they're 18 months apart. But I'll say to even back up this train a little bit, I was the same way. I always wanted kids when I would like play house when I was little. I always had the baby. Like it was never a question for me if I were having kids or not. It was just more of a matter of when. And I got married, I think when I was 27. And I remember thinking, I'm going to wait a year for kids and just live it up with my husband. 27. Now I'm like, that is so young. But we did start trying a year after we got married and it did not happen. And it was very frustrating. And so then we did start fertility things, which I was not expecting to have to do. And that I think is a really interesting way to start your motherhood journey of being like, well, my mom got pregnant pretty easily and had all of us. Why can't I? Like what's holding this back? And it was just a really extremely stressful time. And it's expensive as well. So we actually ended up doing IVF with our oldest and that barely worked. And I say that like we had one embryo left and it was a terrible embryo, our doctor told us. So good luck with, he didn't say it was terrible, but he said it was a really, it was a 20% chance that it was going to work. In my head, I heard, this is a terrible embryo. It is not going to work. (laughs) 
And I remember just sitting there bawling hysterically, like, oh my gosh, I can't believe this is happening. We're so close and it's not going to happen. And then it did. She worked and we ended up getting pregnant. And it was honestly everything that I ever wanted it to be as far as a pregnancy goes. But having her and having a colicky baby and having terrible issues with breastfeeding and I guess I'm kind of talking about maybe not talking holistically about being a mom, but like those early moments of being a mom were extremely hard for me. It was harder than I even thought when I was in it. When I look back, I'm like, my gosh, I needed help. And I didn't have that help. I did not have, you know, I had friends supportive, but everyone else was in it too. All my friends had babies. So we were all in it. Nobody else had challenging babies either like I did with the colicky and the crying and the lack of sleeping. And I definitely think, I feel like we talked about this as of late, but the genetic, oh yeah, in another podcast, the epidemic, what's that called you guys? Epigenetics. Epigenetics. Definitely think I passed down my trauma to my children. I think my mom passed it down to me. I just think that now I know that. I just always thought I was just stressed out, but I think there's truth to that. And I felt very alone and I did not have that mom that just came there and just was with me and in it. And I mean, yes, my mother-in-law is amazing, but it's different. You know, you can't compare that. So it was the hardest time of my life. And then I had another baby. I got pregnant nine months later on her own because that's what happens when you have a cigarette and alcohol on Christmas and you just get knocked up apparently. <laughs> and I was like, oh, this is what totally. happens? You just do this? And like, that was a cheaper baby. Anyways, <laughs> so then I had like basically two babies. Again, another colicky one. My husband and I always say we always loved each other, but we didn't really like each other at that time. So that's a whole nother realm of it. So those years were extremely hard on so many levels. And it was very lonely without having a mom. And I just, I really craved that. And I was just in survival mode. Now it's much easier. I feel like I'm in a different realm of life, but I miss my mom for different reasons now. I need her for different reasons now. And I don't obviously still have her. So I just, I'm curious, Chad, as you're talking, it makes me wonder, do you feel like now you have just a different level of trust in yourself as a mother? Because I feel that and I remember those, that loneliness in those early days. And you're just like, I want my mom to come and, you know, who knows if she'd actually be helpful, right? But Mm -hmm. we can create that she would have been, right? But I just am wondering now, as you mother, do you have this like greater trust in yourself for those basic things, right? Mm -hmm. Yes. And it's shocking to me. I'm not going to say I'm an amazing mom, but I do think I'm a good mom. You are an amazing mom. You oh, are. Thanks, Christine. I, I, I've seen you in action. But I'm surprised that I have even caught on to how to be a mom. And that sounds really weird. And I know I had a mom till I was 13. I get that. But I'm kind of shocked as to how I even knew how to parent. And yes, I, again, I had a mom till I was 13. But from 10 to 13, I didn't really have a mom because she was in the hospital. And so then I don't know. So anyways... I think I have the mentality in my life of I fake it till I make it. And I just try to lead with confidence and go back to the knowing aspect that we talked about with Nia. I do have a strong knowing. So I just go with that. 
and I don't know how else to do it. Just, I just have to push forward and just go with my gut. But I also am very much paying attention to how everyone else parents around me as well. It's not like I think my way is the only way. I really try to absorb what I see other people doing, especially as they get older. I have no idea what I'm doing, right? So like these years have probably been more relevant to me because I had a mom during these years with a seven and nine-year-old. When I get to the older years, I think that's going to be really hard because I'm just going to be like, well, I didn't have a mom then. What did, I know Christine's dying right now. Go on, Christine. (laughs) No, no, I just, it, it resonates. I mean, absolutely. In a lot of research and books that have been written about motherless daughters and motherless mothers, time and time again, the trend has been seeing the majority of motherless daughters feeling a pull to recreate the mother-child bond. And so when I hear you two talking about like always knowing you wanted to be a mom and having these things, and then Christine talking about how thought that there would be this connection and then it wasn't there, like you wanted that. That's par for the course for motherless daughters almost across the board. There are a small percentage that feel an ambivalence or an indifference about it too. And I think it's interesting that I fell into that category. But again, I think that that also has to do with a specific relationship I saw with my parents too and my family structure growing up. So not entirely because I'm a motherless daughter, but also because I'm fucking scared. It's terrifying. It's so much more terrifying when you are a motherless daughter to me, you know? So I just reflecting on what you guys were saying about that, that's that's very par for the course of wanting to create this mother-child connection that you feel was lost. And I don't know if maybe you guys specifically identify with that. You can pinpoint like, yeah, I wanted to create that connection. But I think a lot of those feelings and that pull is there for a lot of us. So I had the thought actually relating to having a boy as well is that I wanted to have a boy first because I was so worried about having a girl and a daughter that I would place pressure on her to recreate that relationship that I lost. And then when I had a second daughter, I was like, I remember saying to one of my best friends, I am going to fuck up two girls now. Now I'm going to fuck up two of them because I'm like, I know I'm going to want, we were going to be best friends, you know, but I think what ends up happening, at least what happened for me is that you are so just, you are just meeting the most basic needs in those first years. And it becomes so much less about an emotional connection because that that's not even where they're at. They just need their basic needs met. So you're feeding them, you're keeping them clean, you're keeping them safe. And while you're doing that, you're creating a bond and you're creating a connection. So all of that other stuff for me just faded. I was like, oh my goodness, this is going to be okay. Who knows what happens in the future when they're actually grown and we can relate in a way that I always desired to have in my with my mom. Who knows? I still don't know. You know, my oldest is 16. We'll see. I think we're very close, but we're still not doing that thing because she's a child. And I just feel so comfortable in this, just being in the present with them and showing up in the way that I need to right now. And hopefully there will be fruits from the labor, right? At some point where we can connect in that really real way that I didn't get to have with my mom. Yeah, absolutely. I definitely feel that. And I think, I think that for the majority of people, it gets harder once your child 
gets past the point that you were when your mom died. In doing my research for that, that was, again, across the board. It was like, all of a sudden, I don't know how to relate to you, or I don't know how to feel about this, or I'm having these almost like jealous feelings of, you know, and so, yeah. So I want to slide into this theme of mothering skills that you guys were talking about. Shadia, like you were like, I just don't even know how I, how I caught on, how to do this thing. And so there is a scientific concept called the reproduction of mothering. And There are two psychoanalysts that specifically have researched this and looked into this. And it's a process where new mothers subconsciously and automatically replicate the infant care behaviors they received when they were young because there are memories stored of being lovingly cared for as a newborn that remains encoded in us until our own children are born and it is transferred We summon it and transfer it into action subconsciously and automatically. And I love, this is like, this blew my mind a little bit too. You know what I mean? Some of that subconscious knowing that you get inherently from yourself. So that was a really cool concept. But like also, how did you feel about your mothering skills before becoming a mother? Or, you know, Sarah, like, what do you think? Are you along the lines of like, I don't know how I'm going to do it. I don't know how I'm going to summon any of the skills. And the other thing is, is that both of you, Christine and Shadia brought this up. And I think that it's important, especially for people whose mothers are still alive, who maybe don't understand that even though maternal figures are there in our lives, it's not the same. And so Cynthia Pill is a PhD licensed therapist who has said before, These women often are not totally devoid of nurturing caretakers, but embedded in their thinking is that if it isn't their mother, they are devoid of a role model for mothering. It's as if they need their mothers in order to feel that they have mothering skills. And I think that that's important because I don't think that we are taking for granted mother figures in our life or other family members, mothers-in-law, aunts, older people that we have in our lives that are maternal. But I think that that's an important distinction that sometimes people overlook. I know I've had people be like, yeah, but your mother-in-law will be there or, oh, you have all this extended family or things like that. All your friends love you and support you. That is true. That is all true. There is nothing to negate that. However, this fact still exists. And I feel that so deeply in my core of I have no idea how to do this because my mother is not here. Is that just the story we tell ourselves, right? Because even if you had a mother here, maybe your mother was, you know, neglected you. Maybe your mom was a great mom and you still don't know how to mother. As you still have a mother around, like, do we create the story in our head that stops us from thinking that we don't have the skills of being a mom? Is there truth in that or is it a story we tell ourselves? And what are the skills of being a mom? What does mothering mean? Christine touched on this earlier where it was really relieving, actually, Christine, to hear you say that once you realized you just needed to show up for your child's basic needs and you could kind of table the emotional stuff for a little while, I was like, I took a deep breath. I was like, oh my gosh, yes. It's interesting though, because that's actually 
I took a deep breath and like relief, but it's also very hard for me to imagine myself showing up consistently because I'm struggling still with my mental health because of my loss and the things that have happened. And so for me, having a partner that I know he's on this like routine that's just so predictable and so dependable that he's going to be great for an infant. And we've joked that I'll take over in the toddler years because obviously you still need consistency, but I just love interacting with toddlers. Once they can talk, just hearing what comes out of their mouth is my favorite thing in the world. But yeah, just going back to this idea of even defining what motherhood means at various stages, because it feels really pathologizing in a lot of ways to even kind of insinuate that somebody can't mother. Because I feel like the last episode we had was like, it's this innate ability, you know, we all have the capacity. So it's, what does that even, what does mothering mean to each of you? I just want to say, God forbid anybody thinks that I can't mother. I will not allow that to happen. As you guys know me, I would never want anybody to think that I couldn't do it. And why do you think that is? Oh, I mean, that that's just my personality, right? I need to prove that I am okay, that I am okay, even though my mom died and I can still do this and I can still hold a job. I, I don't want anybody to think What's the term I'm trying to come up with that we always talk about? I don't want anybody to pity me to think I couldn't do it, right? Is that that hyper-independence showing oh, through? that's weird. That's so weird. Where did that come from? Yeah. <laughs> and I'm hearing a little ego, not in a bad, I don't mean it. Like you're, oh, you're so like full of yourself ego. No. The defensive part where it's like, if I can't do this, it's for your own sense of possibly self and identity, which I, I can relate to. Yeah. Like, how dare anyone question this thing that I care about so much that means mm -hmm. so much to me that you wouldn't even understand because your mom didn't die, blah, blah, blah. It's, I mean, my ego is just the outer protection of myself, I think. And that's exactly what I'm doing, you know? And I think you're, you're right on, spot on there, sister. I have a very active ego, so it picks <laughs> up on others. I, I appreciate your awareness of it, though. I want to go back to the concept of this mothering that has been encoded within us from the day, you know, from the time we don't remember. I believe that. I feel like I've, I don't know why. I don't, I don't know. I haven't heard that specifically before, but I feel like I already had that belief and I thought that was true before you said it, but I'm glad you said it out loud. I think, I think that's true. And I, you know, I think it makes me think about those foundational years. You know, you always hear about people talking about like zero to five, if you had the strong foundation, the outcomes for you long-term are much better, right? So I turned to that for myself and because my life became really unhinged once my mom died, right? My dad was very unstable. I got a lot of, a lot of people didn't know all the things that were going on, but they knew at least that my mom had died. And I did get a lot of that, you know, you're so resilient, you're blah, blah. But I, I do look back and I, I am thankful that my mom was there for those critical years. That includes that mothering that I think is encoded in me. But that created a base for me to feel stability and, and be able to get through the extremely challenging and devastating things that I navigated as a teenager and beyond. 
How does that feel for you, Sarah, as someone who did have your mom really for those foundational years? I mean, you know, four and a half. Do you think about that? Do you reflect on that? It's been reflected to me so often that I feel like anyone who knows that in my life has been really intentional about telling me that. I think to kind of reassure me that you've got this maybe more than you think, because so much of my perception of myself is like, I'm very damaged. I've been through all of this trauma. Like I didn't have stability. And so it has been really helpful to learn the science behind brain development and that bonding and attachment and self-regulation. And that is truly, I think, why I went into this field because one of my coping skills is knowledge. Like you're saying, Shadia, when you don't have a model or a blueprint because you didn't experience it, one way and that I've sought that out is literally going to school and trying to like get the facts, you know, learning about brain development, child development, and then also nannying. I was going to say that earlier. I feel like I, I love surrounding myself with other families so I could watch how they parented, how they were. So yes, it has been very helpful to know that I had a very, very consistent caregiver for the years that she was in my life. And I think I mentioned in the first episode where we tell our stories that there's this duality of that's amazing. I'm so grateful and I'm really pissed that it stopped. Why didn't I get that longer? Could I, like, what would I be like now had I gotten that longer? But I, that's something I wrestle with so much. We've talked about that in past episodes and it's kind of a, it can be a fun thought exercise and also a very, you can spiral. So I think I'd like to go to this gender bias topic of having your kids. So Shadi and Christine, you had mentioned, especially because of your family structure and feeling a connection to your mom, you both wanted boys or thought you would have boys first. And turns out, (laughs) and I want to talk about that gender bias that happens for a lot of motherless daughters Do you guys want to go into more detail about that for your subsequent kids? How did you feel? Um, You you know, you, Christine, you touched on this a little bit. You're like, oh my God, I'm going to mess up two girls now. My partner and I are waiting to see the sex when they're born. We don't know if we're having a boy or a girl. I like surprises, but also I think just because I don't want to spend (laughs) this whole pregnancy having the anxiety. And that sounds weird. Because I've heard a lot of people say like, oh, not knowing would give me such anxiety. No, knowing would give me such anxiety. And I phrase it like this. I'm terrified of having a girl (laughs) because of potentially messing her up or putting too much pressure. But also I'm terrified of having a boy because I'm an only child. I grew up in with my mom, just a couple of gals rooting around, you know, and I had a terrible relationship with my dad. And I've I've had to work through terrible relationships with romantic partners. And so what do I do with either? (laughs) So not knowing gives me more of a peace of mind. And I think that's very strange for people to hear who don't, who aren't a motherless daughter, who don't understand that dynamic. So, and Sarah, I'd like to ask you, do you have a gender bias? Are you, are you terrified either way? I mean, you know, let's open the gender bias question up. I relate to the not knowing. I didn't find out actually for the first three. And then Holden was a surprise pregnancy. And I know how it works and it shouldn't be a surprise. (laughs) 
But when it, where it happened <laughs> in my cycle, I seriously don't know how I got pregnant. He was determined. He was like, <laughs> I am coming into this world. So I did find out with him because it was already something that we weren't planning and I, I wasn't hoping for and wishing for like the other three. And I needed some knowing around it because it was just a lot to take in. And so anyway, so I re- I really relate to that. I think I was very fearful of ruminating on <laughs> all the things if it were, if, if it were a girl, the first one in particular and the second, but I, I truly convinced myself that Eden, my second, was also going to be a boy. I don't, I, didn't, I, didn't I know that's not how it works? You can't will it to change genders in utero. I don't know. I don't. I, I'm off track now. Sorry. I'm just going to say again, though. I think I really once I got into the actual act of mothering, and because those early days are just so essential and just being present, that it, you know, so much of the gender stuff faded away for me. And then once you have multiples, for me, you're really in the thick of it. It's so much physical work. It's so much physical work, hands-on work that there's just not space. And for me anyway, to really obsess over gender, even though, like I said, interestingly, each time I was like, <laughs> I'm still hoping for um, to avoid more girls because I to <laughs> so I didn't mess them all up. But, you know, now I just... Um, like I said, I think I'm really just in the present moment and accepting who they are and who we are together as a family. And I feel like it's really necessary to point out that we do have partners in this too, right? So it's not just us, ideally, ideally, it's not just us navigating these things by ourselves, that we're communicating these feelings and thoughts and concerns with our partners. And I, I, I don't want to minimize that, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's such a good point, Christine. As I'm talking through how I was so alone, like my husband was an amazing, is an amazing partner. But in those early years, he was amazing, even though it was so freaking hard. And you're right, it's so physical. That was extremely draining on me. Not just like nursing, pumping, but just touch, being touched. You wonder why I didn't want to touch you because I was being touched all day long. Anyways, but going back to gender, like I said, I wanted a boy because I wanted it to be like my family where the boy is the, you know, firstborn, the overseer for gender stereotype reasons, I suppose. And then when I found out I was having a girl, I was like a little sad and whatever. But then, I mean, so happy I had a girl. And I think truly I have two girls. I think our family, and it wasn't different than you, Christine. I wasn't worried about messing up a girl. I don't know. That didn't really like occur to me. I was thinking more, I would like to have, now that we have a girl, I'd like to have a boy because I'd like to experience both genders. And I'd like for Nick to have that experience with having a boy and to be able to do the quote unquote boy things, even though my girls now do those quote unquote boy things, you know, shooting guns, hunting, what, I don't know, whatever you want to call it. And I am so grateful now that I have two girls because they are so close in age that it's just extremely helpful for everything from clothes to activities, to just their relationship. And I'm not super worried about messing them up because I just feel like they are who they are. And I already see some of the things that are coming through and one is me. So Lord help me in those teen years. But also Nick is so different than me, right? So I'm I'm just assuming he'll swoop in because I'm just not going to be able to be around. We're just going to 
fucking kill each other. So anyways, (laughs) (laughs) that's what I'm really nervous about is the daughter. I also am worried about messing up my daughter. And then Aaron, I didn't even think about the fact that I've had how I've related to men in the past, how that will show up if I have a son. I actually hadn't thought about that before. And now I'm a healthy amount of anxiety is coming up that will allow me to bring this up with my therapist and maybe You're do welcome. a little more processing. Yeah. <laughs> Sarah was like, wait, I started this episode thinking I want children. I'm ending this episode <laughs> thinking I definitely don't want children and that's on lockdown now. <laughs> I just need, I need a lot of, I was literally just thinking this, maybe it was yesterday in the car, how it's crazy to me how young people have kids or how young it was expected to have kids. People were expected to have kids up until kind of recently and how my brain, like I said, there's a very active ego still I am trying to tame. There is a very active inner child who comes out a lot. I can only imagine, like, I know I'm not alone in that experience. And it's crazy how many adults are just out in the world with these things happening and also trying to be a parent to a child. And I'm just, as a nanny, as a therapist, as a human, I've observed that so much that I worry that my fear and perfectionism is going to come up a lot and it has been coming up, but just this like, I have to, I have to resolve these inner things before I have a child is how I feel. And Christine, do you have some reassurance? (laughs) Sarah, I think that you just having the awareness that you do is so beautiful and that is going to be enough. And the truth is, What I have learned is that you are not going to maybe be able to work through some of these things or, you know, quote unquote, resolve them or, or grow in them until you actually have the experience of parenting an actual human. I mean, I say all the time, I have grown as a human by mothering in ways I never even knew I needed to, right? In ways I never even knew I needed to, you know, and I'm like, so the fact that you even have awareness to me is amazing and a gift and so beautiful. You can't resolve it all. You won't be able to. It's not possible. None of us are able to. And I mean, the ego piece, I totally, that resonates with me because I think becoming a mother, I brought a lot of ego into that, into that role, right? So much of that is just, it's had to I was required to make it fade because it's just not about me. But again, I think, I don't know. I'm so grateful that you have this knowing about yourself and that you're going into the thought of becoming a mother with these things and you're going to be amazing. Mm -hmm. And also you have a partner that's willing to do this thing with you in this beautiful way who has, it sounds to me like he has like this balance of in ways where you know you're maybe not the best at being consistent every Mm -hmm. morning because you're tired or whatever, but you know, he will be with an infant or whatever. And that you can communicate about those things. It's just awesome. Oh, thank you, Christine. That means so much. I've gotten that feedback before because I, I, another theme with motherless daughters, you know, it's like questioning, am I doing this right? And just being told that awareness is enough. I think that's a good reminder for everyone sometimes because when you have that awareness or when I have that awareness, I'll speak from my own perspective. Like I feel a need to do something with it 
to fix it and to just sit with the awareness is really powerful. And I think my goal from this last part of our conversation is going to be to like going into motherhood when that day, when that time arrives is to just stay as open as possible and to continue staying anchored and rooted in self-love because what has allowed me, what allows me to be open and to see these parts of myself that are uncomfortable is self-love. I had to develop that in order to like look at myself in a way that is hard. I also want to add, you know, since my kids are getting older, I have a 16-year-old, 14-year-old, almost 12-year-old, those three in particular. My youngest is eight, so we don't quite have these conversations yet. But I will bring to them, you know, if I feel like I've shown up in a way that has triggered my my 15-year-old self or younger self, that that girl who's hurting, who lost her mom at a young age, I will be honest with them and say, I am sorry. I see in this situation where I behave this way. And I, I think it's because of this. And, you know, that allowing myself to be fully human with them, that yes, I am their mother. And I work so hard to show up as that stable, safe presence. And sometimes I am not able to do that because of my own trauma and my own pain and my own hurt. And I'm sorry. And I'm, I'm aware and I'm going to do better. I'm going to work to do better. And they know that they trust that, right? So that we, we have to tell ourselves going into this, we are going to make mistakes sometimes, big ones. And we can, we can, and we can be human in that. And we can apologize when they're old enough. We can be honest about those very real things that are still a part of who we are in this world. We talked a little bit about this in the body image episode with Stacy about putting the mother on this pedestal of our society does like this perfect mothering figure. And yeah, Christine, you're just talking about showing up as, as a human. We're someone's mother. We are going to be someone's mother, but we are also flawed human beings who are still continuing to work through our trauma, our communication, our connection, our partnerships while we're parenting. And I think that that's so important. That's something that I remember my mother doing for me and showing up for me in showing me certain parts of, and, and that apologize, you know, that I remember having conversations like that with her when I was a teenager and her opening up, like starting to open up a little bit in those ways before she died. That's something that I want to take into my mothering journey as well in knowing in myself and making sure everyone else knows I am not perfect. I am a flawed human being and I'm just trying my best to to mother this person, to be a partner to this person, to exist in this world. And I think that that's really important. I don't know. And and again, coming back to specifically motherless daughters, I feel like there's this added pressure almost oh, recreate this bond or to like be the mother you didn't have or step in in certain ways, but we've had a lot of trauma. We've had a lot of healing. And so giving ourselves grace in those moments and being able to communicate honestly, that's part of that healing process, I think. Those are the things that I continue to learn from Christine as you were talking through that about how you communicate with your kids about where you're at, especially with your teenagers. Like I I really, like how I said, I'm always paying attention to other 
moms out there and that I completely inhale on my body. You have got to like say those things. You have to be okay acknowledging your faults and verbalizing that because in some ways, I don't want to be like my, I don't want to be like my mom in all the ways that she was. I want to fix what I saw that I didn't like and that it didn't feel good. So like communication, my kids and I, we do have really open communication and I feel like there's less judgment and less like you have to be a certain way in my household. So I feel like I'm trying to work on those changes that I want to see for my own family. But I also see moments of where I am acting like a child. And I don't know if it's quite right to be acknowledging that yet with a seven and nine-year-old. You know, I think, I don't know how much they would even understand and I'm not sure if it would benefit them at this point, but it's something that I like definitely keep trying to recognize in myself and adjust how I'm reacting in those situations. And I know as I get older, I will be verbalizing those things to them because I think it's so important for their development and to see me as a human and to be able to connect those bonds that we were talking about. Sure, when they're little, you're right, it's survival mode, you're feeding, you're doing all those things. But in order for me to have a vulnerable, open, good communication, I have to also be able to acknowledge and have them see me for who I really am and my past in order for them to, I think, fully accept me and have that connection as a mother-daughter older relationship. I also see it as modeling for them that they can reflect on Mm -hmm. why they might behave in certain situations and they can, and I think you're right, Shad. I think it matters developmentally when you can start having those conversations. And I think you'll know when you're ready. And again, I'm just going to go back to, I think I see how now especially my two oldest will reflect on when they have moments of, of emotional dysregulation in particular, where they can look back and say, okay, this is a pattern. And I feel like this is maybe what this is coming from and being able to name it so that they can move through it and do better for themselves. Name it to tame it. Just giving the verbiage is so useful. I I love it. Name it to tame it. There's another catchphrase for us. (laughs) I I heard that from either a therapist or a yoga teacher. They're my two modes of healing. Well, we're getting a little lower on time. So in my research for this, one of the books that I used was Motherless Mothers by Hope Edelman. A lot of our listeners know her. We had an episode with her. We love her. We adore her. And so she had interviewed, you know, several therapists and everything also for her book and her research. And there was this one quote by a therapist that she interviewed for the book that keeps coming into my brain. And I wonder if maybe we can do a little reflection on it because I just think that it's very significant. The therapist's name is Irene Rubom Keller, and she is also a motherless daughter herself. And in discussing the topic of choosing motherhood and making that leap, um, making that choice, she had said, and this is this is shortened up a little bit, so it's not quite the full, but it's shortened up a little bit. It takes a lot of courage for motherless daughters to have kids because it's a means of saying, we're going to live. If we really believed we were going to die young like our mothers, why would we have kids? Having kids for motherless daughters is a leap of faith. 
And I like read that and it gave me kind of goosebumps a little bit because I'm not sure that I had really dug into my own self to think about that, about that fear of dying young, like our mothers did, or maybe not exactly young, but younger than they should have, younger than expected, especially us who have very early mother loss. What are our thoughts? What are our thoughts on that? Can you read just the first sentence again? It takes a lot of courage for motherless daughters to have kids because it's a means of saying, we are going to live. That hits real deep. It's funny because I I think I still thought I was going to die around on or around the same age as my mother. So it, it does hit real hard. And now I'm past her age. You know, I'm three years past it. It's, you know, I think unconsciously, subconsciously, we do say that. We do say, you know, we are going to live. For the time being. And then you're saying it, it, there's a resurgence or that it's, the fear doesn't go away, which makes so much sense and also makes it feel really complex then. I'm going to live and I'm going to die. Mm-hmm. But when? So I would say, I think I was consciously thinking I'm probably going to die. But subconsciously, I think I must have been like, no, I'm actually going to live and I'm going to do this thing. Right? You did it. Right. You're doing it. Yeah, yeah. doing it. You're doing it. I'm re- doing the I damn remember, thing. <laughs> I got to tell you guys that at age 40, was, which is when my mom was diagnosed with ovarian cancer, I got shingles on my face of all places, uh. which is really rare. Typically it's like on your torso. So it was interesting. It was right when my grandmother died, my mom's mom. So I do think it was totally emotional. And so I go to the doctor. I don't know what it is at this point, right? I go to urgent care. because It's like this big red blotch and it's super itchy. And I'm, you know, I thought it was like a spider bite. You know? <laughs> and then, so then, so this young doctor comes in and he's looking at it and he's like, I'm going to go get a second opinion. And I'm, I'm sitting there thinking I'm going to die. I was convinced he comes back in with this other doctor. They look at it. The other doctor goes out, he stays and he's like it, or he goes with him and he comes back pretty quickly. He's like, it is what I thought it's shingles. And so I'm like panicking and I, I stop him. I say, I need to tell you right now, my mom, I'm 40. My mom was diagnosed with cancer when she was 40. Can I die of shingles? Tell me, can I die? And he's like, no, no, <laughs> you know, like, no, <laughs> yeah, you know, you really, like, I was convinced, uh-huh. you know, I'm like, this is it, <laughs> you know, it's happening right now. So to move through it is kind of a big deal. And to verbalize that, like, again, <laughs> I'm all in, so into verbalizing right now, but to be able to say that to the doctor, I've learned. I out myself a lot. It's a way to be like, you know, however I want to word it. I'm really sensitive to cancer, uh, the topic of cancer. So don't mind my, what is it called when you're a little irrational? Uh, <laughs> like a nicer word for insane, but like, don't, you know, <laughs> don't I'm mind stable. me while I freak out over here. It makes sense. Trust me. Uh, that's kind of how I'm trying to explain myself constantly. It makes me think about though, like it, there is this, we are acknowledging that we're going to live, but also we're here, right? So we have this opportunity. Do we know the outcome? Yes or no? No, we don't. 
We don't. And yet we still, we're, we're making a choice to continue our lives in spite of the fact that this thing could still happen, right? So we're choosing to fully engage in our lives and be the people we want to be and be in the world that we want to be in the world in the way that we want to be and have children be mothers, regardless of this risk. We're taking a leap of faith. (laughs) I'm just approaching the age, I'm 40, but my mom was 42 and she got diagnosed. But my mom and I are the same, same age when we had children, meaning same, we'll experience things at the same time. And so I'm very, very uh, aware of what is going to be my next, well, not what is going to be next. What was my next five years for my mom and what that will, you know, feel like for me. I always did think that I would die the same way my mom did until I went to a therapist and she <laughs> was like, let's let's talk about this. You think you're going to die from exactly what your mom died from? Not likely. First of all, it's not genetic. Second of all, I think you should prepare yourself that you're probably going to die from something else and you have to accept that. And I was like, you're totally right. So I have lost that thought in my mind that I'm going to die of lymphoma cancer when I'm 45. But it also has a different mindset where I was like, you're right, I could die at 40 from like car accident or whatever. So I just still go with the same mindset of just living each day to its fullest. And I feel like I still try and do that as best as possible with my children. And I always say, we can make more money tomorrow, but that's another story. But (laughs) as a mother living, (laughs) when I became a mom, I did really focus on this thing where I'd be like, all right, for Nick's sake, I got through the first year. We got through that second year with the kids. Now we don't have to show Nick how to do the parenting for a third year. I remember going through those milestones of their lives and being like, okay, they both got through kindergarten. I don't do that as much anymore just because I think they're becoming so so much more independent that you have to do less for them in in physical ways and in other ways, but I, I did that a lot in those early years. But I, I think I, I do that less now. I want to thank my co-host for today. I, I really enjoyed this conversation. And for me, being able to connect and hear more, not only from mother figures in my life, but also motherless daughters who are doing the damn thing, who are mothering. It's very special to hear. And I love it. And I love having this time I know we didn't get to a lot of aspects of mothering without a mother today. And I know there are probably a lot of our listeners out there who are motherless daughters, mothering without a mother. Do you want us to do a part two? Do you want us to cover any other topics? Is there something where you're like, they didn't talk about this, but I want it. I want them to to cover this topic. I don't know. Reach out to us on social media or email us at connect at pieces of Let us know your thoughts what else you want us to cover, things like that. And in the meantime, just thank you for listening this week, everyone. Make sure you subscribe so you don't miss our next episode. We release new content every other Tuesday. Our next episode will be exploring the topic of children and grief. You can listen wherever you stream your podcasts. You can also find us at piecesofyoupodcast.com and on Instagram and Facebook at piecesofyoupodcast. If you love our pod, please rate and leave a review on Apple Podcasts. We would so appreciate it. And take care of yourselves. And remember, if we work together, we can make the broken better. When you feel like you need glue to put back pieces of you, then we will work together.
together to make the broken better when the wounds are fresh and new and you don't think that they